You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Some of us first encounter them as the wicked city that Jonah eventually visits. For others, they're one of the Asian empires that Herodotus surveys on his way to the great showdown between the Greek-speaking city-states and the Persian despots. Some of us have run into their legendary figures Sardanapalus and Semiramis in Dante or Byron. And of course, some of us still aren't sure how to avoid the gorge of eternal peril when the old man asks us, what is the capital of Assyria? We'll address that one later. But relatively few of us know much about the Assyrians as they present themselves and how they fit into the changing landscape of ancient civilization. So Christian Humanist Profiles is glad today to welcome Eckhart Fromm, whose recent book, Assyria, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire, does just what the title promises, showing us where the uh, Assyrians came from, where they headed, and what the ancient world looks like from inside Assyria, as well as the spectrum of ways to look at Assyria from beyond the fall of those grand urban walls. Dr. Fromm, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. The first thing I want our listeners to hear you comment on is likely common knowledge to real historians, but somewhere along the line, Hegel put in my head that despotisms and tyrannies come first, and then much later on down the line come mixed constitutions. Your investigation of early Asher, or, you know, really you say before it was recognizable as an Assyrian territory, uh, shows us that Asher's mixed constitution emerged first and then something much later emerged that we can reasonably call an Assyrian empire. Is this um, a misconception you run into fairly frequently, or is it just me? No, it's, um, I think, a misconception that is widely still with us. And um, if anyone knows something about Assyria, it is usually um, the Assyrian imperial phase that people are aware of. That is when Assyria in the um years let's say between 750 and 612 bce ruled uh, large stretches of the ancient near east from western iran to egypt um, and actually uh, during that time was ruled in a really fundamentally autocratic way with uh, an all-powerful king at the helm of the state um and it is true as you point out and i think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of Assyrian civilization that this is not how it starts um, in fact, at the very beginning, where for the first time we have um, really a large number of sources, um, that is at the beginning of the second millennium BCE for the years between 2000 1700 BCE or so, what we can see is that um, there isn't actually really a territorial state of Assyria in the first place. There is only the city-state of Ashur. It does have a pretty broad geographical horizon because this is a a state run by merchants and traders. Um, they have trade emporia a thousand kilometers or so away from, from the city of Asher in central Anatolia. And the most important one is the city of Karnesh. It's located there. They trade uh, textiles that they produce and import from Babylonia and tin that they import from the east for silver and gold. So this is how they actually make their money. And during this time, there isn't yet really um anything like an autocratic state what uh, you pointed out is uh, quite correct um what we have in Asher is what roman historians might have called a mixed constitution 
That is, you have a hereditary dynasty in place with a, a number of, well, so-called princes. Um, but the power that these hereditary rulers have is very limited, and they share it with two other bodies. One is the so-called city, that is a city council made up of the free men of Ashur, mostly dealing with legal matters and such. Um, and we know that they were able to create new law and so on that was written down on stelae in the place where they met. And the other one is the so-called city hall, which you could say, whereas the city assembly is almost a democratic institution, the city hall would be an aristocratic one. So uh, every year you have um, a so-called eponym, a limum, after whom the year is named, but who is also in charge of uh, taxation of weights and measures of the economic situation, so to speak and is then replaced by someone else. Um, so you have these three different civic institutions interlocked, um, of course, uh, cooperating. Uh, but clearly, um, the, well, the, the democratic and the, the aristocratic components um, of this structure are very, very strong. There isn't even such a thing as a palace in Asher at this time, very much in contrast to many other cities and territorial states in, in Mesopotamia, that is ancient Iraq, at about the same time. And that, of course, gives the lie uh, to statements uh, by Hegel and others who claim that uh, the East essentially has always been a place where despotism rules um, and who argue that the world spirit, so to speak, in order to, uh, to, to blow more freely, had to move uh, westwards to the Greeks, uh, to the Romans, and so on. And that is only there that then uh, liberty and, and civic institutions and things like that were invented. Um, the story is more complicated, and that's one of the uh, lessons, I think, that any, um, well, any, any study of the Assyrian state um, provides. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on that, I mean, is the, uh, I'm, I, does that stereotype about the oriental despot i mean does that go all the way back to rome or is it a more recent invention as far as you can tell no i think it is actually um <clears throat> a stereotype that goes back to classical antiquity roman historians uh, sorry ancient historians beginning with herodotus greek historian herodotus uh, would of course argue that the east is despotic it's also effeminate so there's this uh, idea that uh, often it's women who call the shots and all these um, assumptions are to a certain degree projections um, the Greeks and the Romans were very keen on showcasing their own virility on one hand and in the case of the Greeks of course especially the freedom <clears throat> that they claimed they had for themselves and no one else was able to distribute um, and when, when you think about Herodotus of course an historian of the Persian period uh, 5th century BCE. Um, this is, of course, a different time. And at this point, the rulers of the great empires of the East are fundamentally autocrats. So in this respect, Herodotus is correct. But Herodotus doesn't have that kind of knowledge of earlier Mesopotamian history that we now have, thanks to the finds made from the 19th century onwards of the original texts of the Assyrians, of course, in cities such as Nineveh, Ashur, Kalach, and so on, but also other uh, polities uh, in the ancient East, the Babylonians, the Sumerians. So we can go back much further down the line in, historically than Herodotus and other ancient historians were able to, and thus have a, in some regards at least, a better idea of, well, the, the very stages of ancient Near Eastern history. 
Before we move on, I, I want to get to a linguistic point. Um, the term saru, and you can correct my pronunciation on that, is roughly analogous to the Latin word rex or the Anglo-Saxon word king. And, you know, as I read it, the first figure to call himself that in extant writing uh, is a figure called Asher Ubalit. So what did, uh, you know, the executives, to use a modern term, call themselves before that? And what is important about that change? Yeah, that's correct. So the title Sharu is how we would actually call it. But don't worry, the uh, issue with Assyrian sibilance, the S sounds is actually quite compli complicated. You may actually not be so off with Sharu. So, but we well, would so, so somewhere my uh, my seminary Hebrew professor is shaking his head in disapproval because I should have known that. <laughs> no, 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 you shouldn't. It's really, really very complicated. Uh, so don't worry. Um, but you're absolutely right. This is the title for kings. Uh, the title that is used, the uh, Babylonian, eventually also the Assyrian title is Semitic languages of Babylonia and Assyria, that's the title used for kings. And it's all used all over the place, actually. Um, and it's already used at the beginning of the second millennium in Babylon, in uh, in Uruk, in, 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 in Mari and other places. Um, but interestingly enough, in uh, Ashur, it's not used for the ruler. Um, the ruler at that time in Ashur, there's a number of different titles. One is Rubaum, it's often translated as prince, which is slightly misleading. It's simply an indication that he did have a certain uh, exceptional rule, uh, role to play. But equally important are two other titles. One is Vaklum, which uh, refers to the ruler as the upholder of the legal system. But he doesn't decide on these things. He's he's just the guarantee of the of the system as such. And then uh, another title, and uh, particularly important title, is uh, Ishiak Ashur, that is something like deputy of the god Ashur. And that very god, Ashur, whose name is the same as that of the city, uh, that very god is actually the one who is king at this very time. So what you have in place in Ashur in the early second millennium is essentially a kind of theocracy. The king of Ashur is not some human king, it is instead the god, the god who is at the same time identified with the city. It's a very compact um, idea of um, political power. And it's interesting to note that the god Asher remains the Assyrian, remains king. He, 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 he keeps that title throughout Assyrian history. But as you rightly, rightly point out, uh, in the 14th century, and probably because at, this is the time when Ashur actually emerges or metamorphosizes into Assyria. It becomes a territorial state for all sorts of reasons. It is a state that from now on actually has to compete with other territorial states in the region in the second half of the second millennium, especially Babylonia, the Hittite state, the state of Mitanni in uh, eastern Syria and Egypt. Um, and in order to be um, sort of at the same level, um, as the rulers of those other territorial states, the Assyrian kings of this time assume the title Shao also for themselves. So the title remains with the god, but now there's also an earthly counterpart, and that is the Assyrian king. And you correctly mention the first ruler who, as far as we know, uh, assumed this title, and that was this Asha Obalit I, mid-14th century contemporary of uh, the Egyptian king Akhenaten, the uh, 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 Amenophis the uh, third and Amenos, Amenophis the, the fourth, the famous Akhenaten, he's the one who assumed this this title. And 
with the assumption of this title uh, go along a number of other really important um, transformations of the Assyrian state. Um, I mentioned that now it actually becomes a territorial state, and that happens, of course, through conquest. Up to this point, Assyria is a remarkable, Ashur is a remarkable peaceful. So they gain wealth, as I mentioned, through trade, but they abstain from the almost interminable warfare that takes place, for instance, in southern Iraq, in Babylonia, at, uh, during the first half of the first millennium, of the second millennium BCE. The uh, Assyrians are rarely ever uh, involved in any of that. But from now on, um, there's a dramatic shift, and um, Assyria now actually becomes uh, one of the most aggressive warrior states um, in the world, I would say. And you can see that, among other things, from um, a text where this close relationship between the Assyrian king and the god Ashur is also an issue, and that is the uh, coronation, that that's the coronation ceremony for the Assyrian king. So when he was uh, implemented as king, um, a ritual was performed, and as part of that ritual, uh, the high priest would call upon him in the name of the god, call upon the king, and say, expand your land. Um, so there is this divine command suddenly um, for the Assyrian king, um, charging him with the duty of making Assyria larger than it was before. And that remains very much the raison d'etre for the Assyrian state for the remaining um, six, seven hundred years or so that it that it is still in place. Um, so this is really a dramatic transformation that the state undergoes in the 14th century. And one of the other uh, dramatic transformations that I noted, and honestly, it surprised me how early this seems to start happening, is the is the military strategy or maybe the political strategy, you can tell me what mix of military and political we're talking about, of mass deportation. Uh, this, of course, is you know one of the things that biblical texts lament the most about the uh, Assyrian invasion. Who are the first victims and the first perpetrator of Assyrian deportation, and where do the uh, urban population—pardon me—urban populations of Israel fall in that history? Are they one of the later deported? Are they one of the early deportations? Uh, when you know what what is the history of that mass deportation? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, today, many people, when thinking about the Assyrians, think of mass deportations, partly because they are um, described in the Bible. Um, first, it's important to note that the Assyrians were, of course, not the first to engage in this practice of mass deportation. It's actually something going to the, back to the very early period of, of, of ancient Eastern history. Essentially, the fourth millennium is indications for prisoners of war being deported from their lands and then being enslaved or being being used as laborers or in some other way. Um, and throughout the third millennium um, and the second millennium, this practice continues um, on a certain scale in uh, Mesopotamia, as it uh, also existed in other ancient states. Um, for the Assyrians, the earliest evidence for mass deportations that we have is actually from the 13th century, and a king by the name of Shamanizer, the um, the first is of mid-13th century, uh, we have statements um, that he deported some 14,400, I think is the number he mentions, people from the Khabur River region that's uh, further west from Assyria. This is the time when the Assyrians um, expand from their core area, which is on the Middle Tigris near the city of modern, modern city of Mosul. They expand to the west, uh, eastern Syria, um, and um, 
in the course of those uh, conquests that they make there, especially in the land of Mitanni, they uh, capture a lot of uh, people, soldiers, farmers, their women, etc., etc. And um, this is when this uh, practice begins. The number 14,400 is uh, somewhat suspicious because it's uh, four times the round number 3,600, which is a base number in the sexagesimal system in place in Mesopotamia. So we may not have to believe it, that it's absolutely accurate. But it's probably also not that far off uh, the charts um, and um, is, is not entirely unrealistic. And from then onwards, we have a lot of information, mostly from Assyrian royal inscriptions, but later on also from Assyrian letters uh, for the practice of mass deportation. And eventually, of course, the Israelites and the Judeans too, um, that is the uh, citizens of the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel become victims of this practice as well. The Israelites famously um, first under the Club Eliezer III, um, roots from 745 onwards, but then especially in 722, when um, Shamanese V conquers the capital of Israel, the city of Samaria, it's at that point, uh, the kingdom of Israel has already been reduced to kind of rump state. But this is the moment when um, later on, uh, Shamanizer the fifth successor, Sargon the second, claims that he deported large numbers of the population of Israel. And uh, he also gives us information on where he brought them. Um, he brings them to um, various places inside and 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 uh, inside Assyria and in uh, on on in the periphery, um, and he replaces them with people from other areas. Uh, so this is something quite important, uh, especially for the later uh, Syrian deportations that. Uh, this is not a one-way thing. Where the Assyrians deport people, they replace them, especially in those places that are turned into Assyrian provinces. You can see why, because if you have a province, of course, you need a labor force, you need to have someone who still goes out to the fields and do the farming and all this, uh, so that there is a tax base. Um, and therefore, the Assyrians, while intent on deporting people so that the political unity of a region would no longer lead to uh, constant rebellions, at the same time, uh, bring people from other places to uh, those um, areas. And so in the case of uh, Israel, it's it's people, especially from the Arabian Peninsula, it's, it's Arabs actually who are being settled in Israel, according to the Assyrian texts. The Bible also in 2 Kings 17 uh, talks about this uh, specific uh, deportation. Um, and this is kind of the core uh, historic core story for the for the for the later tales about the the, the ten lost tribes of Israel um so it says that uh, the tribes were brought to um to the Habor river in Gozan and to the land of Halach and to the city of the Medes that's what the bible says and probably the bible gets it quite right here um the Habor river that's Habor that would be the province of Guzana uh, so further to the east and we have evidence for people from Samaria actually writing uh, cuneiform tablets uh, some 20 years later or so, um, selling a bathhouse, uh, engaging in, in legal litigation and so on. Um, Halach, that's the province where Sargon II's new capital was located. That's where he needed a large workforce to build the walls and the palaces and all that. So it would have made a lot of sense to deport Israelites there as well. City of the Medes, we have no text from there, but uh, we know that Sargon uh, turned some of those places into new provinces where he would have needed um, 
well, new settlers, and uh, those people from Israel were quite suitable for that. So that the story about the 10 tribes ending up in faraway places behind the Great Wall built by Alexander somewhere in, in Central Asia or so, even in the New World, as has sometimes been claimed, or in India and so on, uh, lots and lots of legends about this, um, unfortunately probably are unfounded. We know where they ended up. Um, only that those um, Israelite tribes indeed did not uh, somewhat stick to their identity. And that's the big contrast, I would say, of course, to the later exile of the Judeans under Nebuchadnezzar II uh, during the time of the Babylonian Empire. So they, those those Judeans, people from Jerusalem and other places in um, in Judah, were brought to the city of Babylon and to a number of small places all over the place in Babylonia, especially in the eastern um, uh, Illuvium and so on, uh, to engage in farming practices. And, and that's, of course, the that that's the community that then to distinguish itself from this new world in which it lived the babylonian world almost developed judaism on the rivers of babylon so this is when judaism strictly speaking actually comes into place many scholars have argued whereas these earlier deportations lead more to a slow integration of the Israelites into certain society. We know, I mean, also, for instance, in the army, it's interesting that uh, uh, that the chariot troops of the Assyrians uh, were made up of, of, of certain units uh, manned by people from Samaria. They were apparently famous for their skills as chariot drivers. I want to backtrack just a little bit because uh, one of the things that surprised me because I'd never read this before is that the I guess the interactions between uh, the kingdom of Samaria and the Assyrians begins much sooner than I thought it did. I I, I always thought of the Assyrian, you know, encounters with uh, Samaria as an eighth century affair. Uh, but you've got uh, King Ahav as, you know, being uh, attested in texts as being part of an alliance against Assyria. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I remember my professor saying that King Omri, you know, one of the ancestors of Ahav would have been, you know, one of the big names, one of the regional players, but uh, I, I never realized that Ahav was, you know, actually in an alliance. So talk a little bit about that alliance, because I, I think our listeners will be interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, Ahab, who was the, the son of Omri, and Omri, of course, is an important figure. He just happens not to be mentioned in the Syrian sources, but that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have been significant. So this this Ahab, or Ahab, of course, also famous is the name of uh, of the captain in Moby Dick. Right, and, and that's why I still say Ahab when yeah, I talk about the king, a... because I, if I say <laughs> Ahab, I imagine him with a ivory peg leg. Yeah, yeah, no, you did it nicely. So as as the biblical pronunciation would 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 uh, require. So he is mentioned uh, as part of this anti-Assyrian coalition that fights against the Assyrians on the Orontes River in western Syria in the year eight hundred and fifty three along with 11 other kings and rulers, including the rulers of Damascus, uh, of Hamad, and interestingly enough, also uh, a certain Gindibu, king of the Arabs. So we see here the first time that we actually have both the Israelites and the um, Arabs mentioned. They uh, fight on the same side. I mean, uh, this is not going to solve uh, conflicts we experience these days and for quite some time, but it's perhaps interesting to see that this isn't 
something that goes back to the very earliest times. Uh, often enough, we actually find the Arabs and the Judeans and the Israelites in an alliance, um, at least against the Assyrians. So we have this coalition of 12 kings fighting against King Shalmaneser III, 853 against uh, uh, on the Orontes River, um, and uh, the Assyrian king uh, Shalmaneser in his inscription, which he describes this battle, names Ahab and uh, actually calls him an Israelite. Um, so Ahab is the first Israelite to be mentioned in the Syrian sources, first actually Israelite king to be mentioned in any um, contemporary source, I should say. And that, of course, makes this a particularly important reference. Um, Shamanesa III, uh, this is a fairly early uh, inscription, um, also mentions another king of Israel, and that's Jehu. Uh, he mentions him in... Um, in an inscription that accompanies an image on his so-called black obelisk, where you can see this King Jeho, or the Israelite King Jeho, um, submit to the Assyrian king, engaged in proskynesis, he, he bows down before the Assyrian king and delivers tribute to him. And it's somewhat ironic that um, Jeho is actually called the son or the descendant of Omri. And that's, of course, not quite accurate, because Jeho actually had... Uh, purged the dynasty of Omri in a very bloody uh, coup and had killed all the family members of of uh, that were still still left from the from from this line of Omri and had replaced the line of Omri with a new dynastic line but that's something the Assyrians were apparently not quite aware of they were aware of though that there was this Omri they call him Khumri and so they reference him. And later on, they call Israel sometimes Beat Homri, that is the house of Omri. So Omri does loom large in the perception of the Assyrians as well. They acknowledge in a way that uh, he was a founder figure and that the uh, state of Israel uh, owed to him its, well, to some extent, its existence as a, as a powerful kingdom. Um, you also have reference to Israel, though. So Sir Alaya also, that is the Israelite, is, is how Ahab is described in the inscription uh, about the battle um, on, on the Orontes River. And like I said, this part was fascinating to me because I, I recently taught uh, First and Second Kings in the Sunday school class that I teach. And one, I, one thing that I noticed is that both Assyria and Babylon seemingly just emerge out of nowhere, the way that the books of Kings tell the story. And, you know, to know that uh, Israel was not only well aware of them, but in alliances against them, uh, was honestly, I mean, you know, probably one of the things that would, uh, that most changed my understanding of this period. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, no, I mean, the Israelites come into contact first with the Assyrians, later on with the Babylonians as well. Um, to the extent the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian state expands. So um, under Shamanesa, the Assyrians for the first time really crossed the Euphrates River westwards. And that means, of course, now suddenly you have Assyrian armies in these areas in which you have polities such as Damascus or Hama or, or Israel, for that matter, uh, being independent king kingdoms. And of course, that leads to conflicts and eventually the Assyrians prevail. They are the ones that wipe out all those independent kingdoms and turn them into provinces. And, and this is indeed in world history, I think, a, a major watershed moment. Um, and these encounters with Assyria, maybe we have a chance to talk about that later, of course, also have um, an impact on the way the Israelites perceive their own relationship to God. Um, 
this whole imperial experience leads to a reconceptualization of the divine um, as something much larger in line with this new experience of empire, which is also a large political um, formation. Very good. Well, I do want you to talk a little bit about the title of the book, because uh, I remember professors telling me that the Hittites and the Egyptians were capable of, of projecting power as far as Canaan, and that they were in some kind of war that, you know, uh, gets called the Battle of Carchemish, even though it was a series of battles, uh, long before Tiglath-Pileser III is on the scene. So take a few moments here and say, what is it that makes a serious expansion in that first millennium an empire? And what is it that makes it different from the Egyptians or the Hittites of the second millennium? Yeah, I think you're right that this is, of course, a matter that can be debated. And I mean, my, my take on this doesn't have to be the final word. I admit that this all depends on definitions. And um, But we're talking about your book, so I want to hear yeah, your right. take. So exactly. So let me say this. First of all, it's important to realize, of course, that earlier states in uh, the Near East um, were aspirational empires, so to speak. So in the inscriptions of their rulers, you can see that those rulers had the idea that they should actually rule essentially all the all the other places they were aware of. And that begins actually not only in the second, but it already begins in the third millennium with the kingdom of Akkad. And my, my Yale colleague Ben Foster a few years ago wrote a book about that kingdom in which he claims this is the very first empire. So here you see the conflict. Um, the Hittites had uh, a large kingdom that expanded into Syria, to northern Syria, Egypt during the new kingdom, Likewise, as you rightly point out, ruled over portions of Sudan and also um, over portions of, of, of the Levant. What I would say, though, is that what happens in the mid-8th century, simply in terms of scale and also in terms of organizational complexity and in terms of diversity, has a new quality. So Tiglapileza III expands the Assyrian kingdom in, in such a way that by the end of his reign in uh, 727 BCE, um, he has doubled the size of the state. Uh, there are numerous ethnic religious um, groups uh, that he now rules. They speak many different languages, Indo-European ones, Semitic ones. Um, the, Assyri the Assyrians eventually even rule over Egypt in the 7th century BCE. It's conquered by Asahadon, reconquered by Ashurbanipal. Um, and at this point, there were really everything from Western Iran to Egypt, from uh, Southern Anatolia to the Persian Gulf. And that size of a state, that's something that didn't exist before. Um, you also have this issue of organization. So at the height of its power, the Assyrian Empire has some 70 provinces or so, very well organized uh, with a flow of goods from the periphery to the center, of course, but with complex communication lines in place all over and so on and so forth, the road systems. And I would just say something like that, something that big, um, about uh, 1 million square kilometers in size or so, simply didn't exist before. This is for the first time that I would argue uh, the imperial idea really has been realized. But again, you can question that. What I would say you cannot question though is that in the later perception, especially among Greek and Roman historians, it is actually the Assyrians who are the first to create an empire. So for Diodorus, even for Herodotus already, um, the Assyrians are the ones to start off 
this project of empire. And from then on, the idea of empire and the practice of empire is handed down from one empire to the next. So there's the Neo-Babylonian, the Persian, then with uh, Alexander and the Seleucids, the Hellenistic empires, and so on and so, and so forth. And this tradition continues into the European Middle Ages. So Dante, in his book on monarchy, De Monarchia, uh, likewise points out that for him, it's the Assyrians who were the first to gain the prize, the prize of imperial power. Um, the Romans, of course, for Dante, were the ones who really got it right. So they have the perfect empire that becomes the reference point in the West. And that's, of course, accurate. But still, um, and even the Bible, it's very interesting to see. I mean, you mentioned that um, the Assyrian sources are the first sources for us um, where we have names of, of biblical kings. The, the other way around, uh, this this is true as well. It's the Assyrian kings who are the first historical rulers who are mentioned in the Bible. So this encounter with Assyria is the encounter with the first empire that the biblical um, well prophets and priests who write the biblical texts actually encounter. And in a way, that's then for them also the beginning of their, um, well, um, encounter with empire, which of course is this case is is a very fraught one and a very very violent one and and one mostly defined by opposition to empire, of course, which is very important. It leads to completely new and revolutionary um, ways of doing religion. Um, but considering this reception history of Assyria, I think uh, this at least gives me um, a way to say in an almost objective way that the Assyrians are the first empire in world history. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. Now, listeners, I want to say that we are flying over a great expanse of book here, uh, but those are the limits of a of an hour-long interview. So listeners, go out and get this book, read it, uh, read it deliberately because there's so much good material here. But to move on, some of the material that was absolutely new to me had to do with a series of relationships with Phoenicians and Greeks and Arabs. And we've mentioned Arabs briefly already, but uh, choose, you know, one of these or touch on all three, but Assyria's encounters with the peoples at the edge of their empire. What do those encounters tell us about the imperial project more broadly? Yeah, so um, thank you. That's a, that's a nice question. Um, Assyria is basically a land empire. The Assyrians are very good when conquering areas they can reach with their armies, um, and they're able to cross steps and so on, um, like the Syrian steps. Um, but they need somehow to have farming nearby so they can actually get food for the troops and so on and so forth. They're not very good when it comes to crossing very high mountains. They're not very good when it comes to crossing the desert, the real desert. And of course, the sea uh, is also a natural frontier that is very hard for them to cross. So what happens is, of course, at some point, um, the expansion of this land empire um, actually confronts these edges that are characterized by by being deserts or the sea. And so in the West, it's the Mediterranean Sea, um, where the Assyrians kind of fail to um, to build large fleets and continue their conquest westwards. So what they do instead is they almost engage in, in, in a kind of symbiotic relationship with the Phoenicians. So the, they, of course, want the Phoenicians to pay them taxes and uh, they want to profit from Phoenician trade. But they accept that the Phoenicians are the ones who engage in Mediterranean trade. They know the Phoenicians are very good at it. They have the knowledge to build the ships. They know where 
you can actually trade goods along the Mediterranean coast in Africa and in, in Greece, wherever they go. And they are happy with just simply siphoning off uh, some of the gains definitions make. Um, and so they leave, for instance, entire the local king in place, even though there are a number of rebellions against Assyria, they leave him in place. They put up uh, there some local diplomat who observes what's going on and makes sure that nothing too untoward against Assyria are taking place. But unlike in many other areas, they, they don't turn these Phoenician cities into, into, into provinces. Um, with the Arabs, it's a slightly similar situation. The Arabs with the domestication of the camel around 1000 BCE uh, are the ones able to conduct this long distance trade with places far off, especially in South Arabia and modern Yemen. So the incense trade, the trade in spices, things like that, and uh, also some precious stones. Every uh, All these items were extremely expensive at that time. Uh, so again, uh, you're dealing here with people who actually can produce a lot of wealth. And so what the Assyrians are doing is they um, try on one hand to well, get the Arabs somehow under control, but they also um, leave them to a certain extent in place. They, they leave their political leaders in place so that this trade that the Arabs are engaged in can continue. But perhaps that's painting a little bit too to, to harmonious a picture because there is of course also a lot of conflict um, with the Arabs in particular the Arabs are not only doing this trade but they're also raiding and so they if, if there's an Assyrian uh, caravan or so then they might just come out and, and take um, away whatever they're bringing and so on and that's of course a real problem for the Assyrians so there's also a lot of evidence for warfare with the Arabs um, and in such cases What's particularly fascinating is that what we learned from the Assyrian inscriptions is that the Arabs were led by women at the time. We are speaking here in particular about the 8th and the earlier 7th centuries BCE. So at that time, um, the Assyrian, the Arabs had queens. And those queens would in fact turn up at battles on camels and would observe what was going on. And some of them were captured by the Assyrians and brought to Nineveh and underwent some re-education they would eventually be sent back to their capitals in the hope that they would henceforth well do politics um, in well a way that the Assyrians would find more appealing it did often not really work out very well but this is one of the most fascinating aspects of these encounters with with the Arabs that we see here and these are the earliest sources about the Arabs we have from anywhere again the Assyrian sources um, it's nothing like it, uh, providing us with information on the political organization of the Arabs at this early time. And we do see here that there is this matriarchy in place. And it's quite interesting. I mean, usually, of course, when you think of empire, you think of the imperial center influencing the periphery. In the case of the Arabs, I have wondered in the book, and of course, that's idle speculation, I must admit, whether it might not also have been a slightly the other way around, because we can observe, in especially in the beginning of the 7th century, um, that a number of royal women at the Assyrian court are becoming very powerful, especially the mother of King Asahadon, uh, a woman by the name of Nakia, but later on also the sister of uh, Ashurbanipal, Shebo Etirad. And of course, it is not unfeasible that 
this rise in power of these women might have been a reflection of encounters with these Arab queens and the Assyrians realizing that their patriarchal model was perhaps not the only possible model and that at least some royal women should have political agency as well. Um, so that would be an example of the complex relationships between the center and the periphery. The, the Arabs were also sometimes helpful for the Assyrians, for instance, on those occasions when Assyrian troops um, invaded Egypt. They, of course, had to rely on Arab tribes to bring them across Sinai Peninsula to deal with the transport, the, the water that they needed, uh, the food and so on. That is a dangerous journey, of, obviously, in the descriptions by Asahadon and Ashabanibal indicate how dangerous it is. So endless sand dunes and and sand vipers and everything and so on. And we know that on those occasions, Arab tribes helped the Assyrians. Of course, uh, I mean, I'm sure against remuneration, they would profit from uh, having helped them. I want to turn to an event that uh, captured my imagination. It might be a side event, but I've just got to hear you talk about it. And that is the commission uh, in the Assyrian, the Neo-Assyrian period, of an Enuma Elish with Asher rather than Marduk as the chief champion deity. Um, to what extent does this specimen share a genus with, for instance, the appropriation of Babylon's mythic vocabularies in Genesis 1? And in what ways do these two literary events stand distinct? Yeah, it's a it's it's a topic dear to my heart, but also one difficult to condense in, in, in five minutes. I, I, I try to be as concise as I can be. So... The Assyrians had this desire to uh, dominate uh, all over the place, and also in Babylonia. But their relationship with Babylonia was a special one. It was very much like the relationship between the Romans and the Greeks, because Babylonia was the fountainhead for culture for the Assyrians. So, except for the god Asho, who was generally Assyrian, many of the Assyrian gods came from Babylonia. Assyrian literature was generally Babylonian. Assyrian scholarship came from Babylonia. So there was this idea that the Assyrians would have been willing and happy to grant Babylonia all sorts of privileges, tax-wise and so on, as long, though, as the Babylonians would fundamentally uh, accept Assyrian political hegemony. And the problem was the Babylonians didn't. They rebelled again and again against the Assyrian kings, and slowly but steadily, of course, the Assyrian kings became ever more impatient by that. Now, you mentioned the Babylonian epic of creation. So this is a generally Babylonian text that celebrates the Babylonian god Marduk, city god of Marduk, Babylon, as the great god who creates the cosmos as we know it, with making the stars and so on. And um, celebrates the city of Babylon as the the omphalos, the navel of the world. Um, in the end, Marduk is the king of the gods, essentially the only god who's out there. No other god really matters anymore. This is the outcome of the epic. That's, of course, a great blueprint for autocrat autocrats, um, if you wish, like the late imperial Assyrian kings. The problem was, of course, it was the wrong, it was the wrong god. It was a Babylonian, not the Assyrian god. So when in 689... King Sennacherib of Assyria not only conquered Babylon, but destroyed it, claims to have completely obliterated it by directing the Euphrates across the temples and palaces of Babylon. When that happened, um, there was a need somehow to replace what was lost. And what was what, what the Assyrians did at that moment is, on one hand, they recreated the cultic infrastructure of Babylon in the city of Ashur. They we build, uh, they build Ashur in the image of Babylon, you could say, with, with temples looking very much like those in Babylon. And they also devised sort of Enuma Elish um, 
1.2 or 2.1 or whatever you want to call it. So a revised version in which the god Marduk was replaced by the god Ashur and the city of Babylon replaced by the city of Ashur. Um, in the end, this was again reversed and this religious reform did not survive the reign of Sennacherib or only elements of it survived. But it was nonetheless, of course, a really important, interesting moment and one that shows how very important and central the Babylonian epic of creation at this time was, not only Babylonia, but also beyond. And how important it was beyond, we can also see from other examples, for instance, even in late antiquity, there's still Greek philosophers, the Neoplatonic philosopher Damascus, for example, who can provide a very detailed um, summary of the very beginning of the Babylonian epic of creation. This is where um, the epic talks about primeval proto-deities, chaotic powers like the a goddess uh, Tiamat, embodiment of the ocean and the sweet water god Tapsu, uh, mingling their waters. And from this is where that the younger generations of gods come into being. Now, you ask me about Genesis and the first creation account in Genesis. And actually, I have written about this myself, but I've not been the only one. And I do believe that there is a link between the Babylonian epic creation and Genesis. I do not think this goes back to Syrian times, though. I think it's more likely. We can't be sure about that, but it's more likely that it's when the Judeans were in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE that they encountered the Babylonian epic of creation. I think it's almost inevitable that they did because we know that the Judean royal family was uh, placed as hostages in Nebuchadnezzar II's palace in Babylon. That was very near to the temple of Marduk. The Babylonian epic creation was the important text of the time. They must have encountered it. And when you come and, and and what I was driving at, and I and I apologize, I, I didn't phrase my question very well. Um, you know, I mean, we've got two specimens here where uh someone basically appropriates the vocabulary of Babylonian uh creation story, uh, one instance in Assyria, one instance in biblical text. Is this something that happened a fair bit in the ancient world, or are these two strange outliers that just happen to be extant for us? No, I think this is a this is a particularly significant and important case um, because this text is so important. It's really like the Babylon the epic is is the Babylonian Bible in a way. And and yes, I mean you you, you anticipate what I was going to say that I do believe that uh, the author of Genesis, the priestly author of Genesis one to two four, draws on the Babylonian epic of creation. When you compare the first lines, there are very pronounced similarities. But of course, in this case, he also very much rewrites it. It's a counter story. It's no longer all these different chaotic deities and proto-deities at the beginning. They're all gone. There's only one god. So monotheism is 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 now the, the new call, of course. And so these, these, these many deities, the battles between the deities, this is all eliminated from the scene. And instead, you have one god who now is in charge of creating the world. But the way he does create it is very similar to the way Mardo creates the cosmos, so splitting up things, naming things. So when you look at the details, even the statement in the Bible in Genesis 1.14 that uh, God set up the stars as signs or taught in Hebrew, um, this is not what you elsewhere find in the Bible. Actually, astrology is not something the Bible endorses, but here you have it. And it's very much in the spirit of Babylon, of course, where 
uh, divine signs in the skies and astrology played an enormously important role and the word otot corresponds to Babylonian itatu. So it's indeed, again, just as in the case of the Assyrians, that the biblical authors do something very similar. Um, I do think the biblical authors do the same thing essentially with the story of the flood. Um, and again, probably only later, but that's debated. Some argue this happens already earlier. The story of the flood is a generally Babylonian story. In this case, I think it's very clear. It makes sense mostly in Babylonia. And of course, in, in the Bible, all the primeval history is set in Babylonia. So it's not surprising, actually, that the story would draw on Babylonian models. Uh, so there you, you have it as well. You have, again, interesting transformations. In the case of the Babylonian flood story, the idea is it's essentially population control. There are too many people and the flood is being sent by the gods in order to get rid of them. Whereas in the Bible, you have these insistence, uh, God saying again and again to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. So this is again this idea that the Bible does is not simply plagiarizing anything, but it creates something really new uh, by using these earlier materials and uh, creates a completely new revolutionary theology around these stories. So it's important to point this out as well. And the historians, of course, also had flood stories. So you could argue that it is somewhat similar. Um, but I would say the Babylonian epic creation is perhaps the best example for this kind of adaptation of literary motifs. Yeah, and I guess my imagination was just running wild. You know, are we someday going to discover a Persian Enuma Elish and a Parthian Enuma Elish? And did everyone just borrow it? Or seems like yeah, it's just the so. two. I think, I mean, in a way, speaking of Parthian or Roman, for instance, at Palmyra, the famous Syrian caravan city in central Syria, um, you have reliefs that show, so carvings that show a scene that looks very much like the battle between uh, Tiamat, this primeval deity, Marduk and Marduk's son Nabu. So this is early Roman, um, first century AD. Um, it looks very much like that the story is out there as well. Well, one consequence of the science of modern archaeology is that Sardanapalus is no longer the last Assyrian empire emperor, pardon me. And another consequence is that he's no longer Sardanapalus, but Ashurbanipal, which to be honest, sounds a little bit more Assyrian anyway. So talk a little bit about the faces that Ashurbanipal has taken on in modern poets and Assyriologists and how those faces differ from the person who emerges when modern archaeologists study this late but not final Assyrian emperor. Yeah, so for a long time, of course, after Cuneiform was, was lost, could no longer be read, um, so beginning in the second century AD or so, all that was known in the West about the king kingdoms of ancient Mesopotamia, of course, came either from the Bible or from the Greek and Roman classical historians. And the Sardanapalus is a figure from Greek and Roman historiography. He is in these accounts, uh, the last Assyrian king, and he is depicted as essentially ineffective, effeminate. So he's, he's very much sort of staying at home in his palaces. He's constantly indulging in, in, in love with men and women. It's again a classical case of, you would think in a way, of the Greeks projecting onto the Orient, onto the East, everything they abhorred themselves in order to aggrandize themselves, of course, to some extent. And when in the 19th century, the Assyrian uh, sources, Assyrian capitals were excavated and, and Assyrian images and Assyrian texts came to the fore, uh, what, what archaeologists discovered was, of course, that the figure behind the Sardanapalus was King Ashurbanipal, 
was in many ways very different. So Ashurbanipal, as you rightly point out, is not the very last Assyrian king, but he's the last great Assyrian king. He rules from 668 till 631, uh, so nearly 40 years after him, only a few very ineffectual king kings follow and then the Assyrian Empire comes to an end. So it's not surprising that he's portrayed in these later sources as the last king. But Ashurbanipal presents himself in his texts when you look at them and also in imagery um, on these relief carvings as a war-prone king, as a king who engages in these fights against lions. He hunts the lions. When you go to the British Museum, some of the finest art, not only from the Syria, but from the ancient world in general, I would say really are these lion hunts of Ashurbanipal with, with very evocative depictions, especially of the lions in their uh, act of dying, um, almost more human than human beings on many of, of these reliefs. Um, Ashurbanipal also claims for himself to have been a great scholar, and um, he um, actually implemented, inaugurated this universal library in Nineveh, from which so many copies of the ancient texts, ancient cuneiform texts, the literary texts we today have uh, actually derived. So it seemed initially as though there was a complete disconnect between the Sardanapalus figure from Greek historiography and the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. In my book, I might be a little bit too critical of Ashurbanipal, but I actually make an attempt to reconcile these two images a little bit, though, because I think even though, of course, Ashurbanipal presents himself as this great um, Renaissance man who does everything, he fights, he reads, he writes, um, he creates great art, he didn't live up, in fact, to these high aspirations. Um, and his problem was that, unlike other Assyrian kings, he, he, he tried to put these, uh, these, these statements of greatness um, too often to to, to 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 sort of a series of public tests. So people could observe him hunt lines in an arena near Nineveh. Um, his scholars would see how he dabbled in writing. And his writing isn't really good. We have a few texts that can clearly be shown to be by Ashurbanipal. And we have letters to him which include glosses of things that, of signs every every elementary scribe should know. And when it comes to warfare, it's very interesting to see that he actually doesn't go to war. He claims in some of the later inscriptions that he did all these 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 battles, but we have early inscriptions in which we read um, that a prophet appeared suddenly to a man at night, uh, or uh, a prophet had a vision with the goddess Ishtar appearing to him and 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 calling uh, to Ashurbanipal, "Don't go to war, eat, drink, and make merry uh, in your palace while I'll do the work for you." This is the real Ashurbanipal, and I think such. This, this disconnect between the body politic, the body natural, so to speak, it didn't remain um, sort of behind closed doors. The people, the subjects of, of the king became aware of this disconnect too. It's interesting that there is a famous story about the tomb of Sardanapalos in this later Greek tradition. And it claims that the inscription written on that tomb was eat, drink, and make merry, for the rest isn't worth anything. And then the king, these texts describing the tomb, uh, saying, was depicted in the act of snapping his fingers. Now, this act of snapping is probably a depiction or uh, an interpretation of a very widely uh, used gesture of prayer by Assyrian kings. But this business with eat, drink, and make merry, I think, really goes back to this prophecy that Ashurbanipal received 
um, that relieved him from the duty to go to war. So that in the end, I think it's too simplistic to just uh, charge the Greek historians with Orientalism uh, regarding this image of Ashurbanipal. There is Orientalism, not that it doesn't exist, but it's not the whole story. And I do believe that Ashurbanipal on the whole was a fairly ineffectual uh, ruler, and I argue, and that's of course a very uh, debatable thing, that especially the later decades of his rule contributed to the fall of the Assyrian Empire in somewhat decisive ways. Here at the end, I want to turn to your final chapter because uh, you talk, you write at some length about the destruction that ISIS visited on the archaeological sites of the Assyrians. But uh, you offer a, a strange but tragic bit of comfort in the wake of that. And that is that archaeologists now have occasion to seek out older sediment settlements, pardon me, upon which the already extant sites might have been built. So, I mean, to what extent is this a silver lining and to what extent does the destruction outweigh the opportunity? Yeah, first, I think everyone agrees the destruction was terrible. I mean, there were major structures such as the palace of Ashurnasabad the second in Kalach, the only palace still sort of in situ in place on the ground in Iraq, where you could get an idea of how an Assyrian palace, a gigantic Assyrian palace would look like, essentially completely blown up into smithereens. Um, same with structures at Nineveh. But uh, as you rightly point out, the destruction of uh, a number of structures at Nineveh also enabled uh, archaeologists after the defeat of ISIS in 2017 with the liberation of Mosul for the first time actually to excavate certain areas that up to then had been inaccessible. That includes the area under the mosque um, of Jonah the Nebi Yunus Mosque at Nineveh, named, of course, after the Jonah you referenced in your introduction, who's uh, famous, of course, for uh, having having ended his life journey at Nineveh. Um, that mosque was built on top of an old Assyrian palace. And, of course, as long as the mosque was standing there, no one was able to uh, excavate. Isis uh, blew this mosque up because it was worried about Jonah being worshipped too much, and that was not in line with a very monochromatic um, Salafist ideology, and that enabled um, a team of German and Iraqi archaeologists also using the, the tunnels that ISIS already had dug underneath that mosque, because ISIS did not just destroy but also loot, uh, enabled them for the first time really to go down there and to excavate, for example, the large a large throne room, um, probably from the reign of Asahadon, the Syrian king whom I've mentioned before. And one of the exciting new findings is that there was not just one throne, but there were two on each side of the throne room. And now, of course, we wonder, was the second throne, the one was clearly for Asahada, was the second one for his mother, Nakia, or for his son, Ashabani? But it's very exciting, of course. Likewise, the gates of Nineveh. Uh, these were large buildings. Often they were actually reconstructed um, in the 60s and 70s by the Iraqi Antiquity Service. ISIS blew those up. And so for the first time now, under the rubble, uh, archaeologists, including Michael Dante uh, from the United States, um, but also uh, Italian uh, archaeologists from the University of Bologna, have been excavating. And among other things, it's quite striking. I've found lots of cuneiform texts unexpectedly, and also traces of the final assault on Nineveh in 612, which brought the Assyrian Empire down. So you can see, I mean, when you dig down um, into the entryways to those gates, uh, how those last 
uh, fights taking place actually well what 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 they brought about you still see the bodies strewn along those entryways of of the defenders of Nineveh at that time when the Babylonians and Medes conquered the city so this can now be uh, investigated for the first time and so that is if you wish a little bit of a silver lining but I I don't want to say that it was worth it also it's still really a tragedy that so much um, of the art that was still in situ and hadn't been brought to any museums has been destroyed so this is this is deeply depressing of course well i've been at the wheel for most of this conversation so in the spirit of hospitality i'm going to let you have the last word what do you want our listeners thinking about assyria ancient politics or whatever else as we head for the door yeah um Maybe, I mean, thinking about my book and something that's new, um, I would point to the question of how came it, the Assyrian Empire about? There's always this question, what what caused the collapse of the empire? And I mean, I'm dealing with this, but it remains, of course, the question difficult to, to answer. But not so often the question is asked, why empire in the first place? And as we have already discussed, in my view, the, the Assyrian Empire, strictly speaking, begins only with Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, who comes to the throne in 745. So how is that, that this then happens? And what I've been observing when writing about this question is that, surprisingly, the 20 years preceding the reign of Tiglath-Pileser III were actually a period of great crisis. So it was probably less rainfall suddenly, uh, so less agrarian uh, produce being 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 harvested and so on. But even worse, um, there was a series of plagues. There was were epidemics, and that's of course something that resonates with our own time. We have just gone through this, and so we have experienced it ourselves. Now, normally, of course, after plague and climate change and all these things, you would expect that uh, well, uh, political entity would suffer. Would would contract and so on. And it is very strange to observe that in the case of Assyria, the opposite ha happens. Uh, Tigapileza goes on these campaigns and expands Assyria so massively. So how to explain this? And my answer to this question would be, I think what you can see here is that um, there is such a thing as historical agency uh, if the crisis isn't too massive, of course. And in this case, Tigapileza's campaign of conquest and deportation is an attempt to compensate the losses, the losses both in, in labor and in wealth, the Assyrians suffered, especially through these bouts of plagues. So lots of people must have died. And of course, the economic output must also have uh, decreased substantially. So what you do, you go and conquer other places, um, and then you bring the people from those other places to Assyria. So you have the labor force that initially um, had been lost to those bouts of plague. Clearly, of course, this can only have happened if those plagues in Assyria weren't totally devastating, that's that's obvious. Otherwise, Tigapileza couldn't have done it. And I think it's also quite likely that they probably affected the Assyrian opponents as well. We have evidence only for Assyria for those bouts of plagues, but I think it's quite likely that affected um, Babylonia and also Western Asia, there's Levant, Syria, and so on. And that, of course, would have made it easier for Tigapileza to engage in these conquests and deportations. But that's um, an idea, I think, that's quite interesting. And I'm not bringing this up as a model for our own time. I mean, we are not like the Assyrian Empire, I would hope. 
but perhaps rather as a warning that if you wish bad players can do all sorts of things in moments of crisis and we are better prepared and we better observe what's going on um, in such moments of great transformation um, where all sorts of things go wrong and of course when these things ensue there are opportunities and some people may seize them others may not um, but I do think it's a story that has something to tell us uh, today uh, that we better take um, into account. Eckert Fromm, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. A great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Assyria, The Rise and Fall of the First Empire from Basic Books. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.